for the Real World Podcasting Network. And today, I hope you've packed a lunch or at least enough loose change to get a couple bags of chips out of the vending machine because we are covering the very dense Better Call Saul Season 3. My name is Kevin Ford, and I am the host who is enjoying Better Call Saul through for the second time. And my other host, Jerome Cusan, is enjoying it for the very first time. Jerome, how are you doing this day? Uh, Kevin, I have uh, I brought just enough change to get uh, a couple varieties of chips, so that as I as I sit and listen to you pontificate on the wonders of season three, that I can uh, can munch on these chips that I purchased with my loose change. Is there anything sadder, Kevin Ford, than a lawyer just resorting to buying chips in, in a vending machine? Well, I guess when you're when you're have back to back to back to back clients, it's all you really can do, but. I guess it's better than the very uh, saturated, fat, dense burger that that Jimmy got that one time. I love his lawyer friend, though, uh, both taking it and saying that they're the best fats, but also when he had the bag of chips, uh, the acting choice to have like his fingers fishing through the bag to find the biggest chip possible. Little things like that make me appreciate him even more. Yes, I think that's one of the things that this show and Breaking Bad also did is they got a lot of those small items, right? And it feels like Better Call Saul, one of the things that they're able to do, I think they're able to be a little bit looser on the show because the stakes aren't as high, both because it's a prequel, and I don't think there is the existential dread of someone dying in every scene like you got in those last couple scenes of Breaking Bad. So Better Call Saul is able to play more and operate more of a comedic-type atmosphere, and I think you see that a lot in this season and you've seen it um, more so in, in previous seasons, but I think season three gets a little bit more serious. It does. Like there's still comedy, but it, the comedy and there's still a lot of some light comedy, but there's a lot of more elements of dark comedy in season three. I think season three starts the way all the other seasons have with a flash forward to Gene Saul's alias in his post breaking bad world, working at Cinnabon and in this particular flash forward, he's on his lunch break on the upstairs portion of the shopping mall where he witnesses a kid who has just stolen some CDs from a CD store. Remember those days? And he hides in a photo booth. Police are looking for him and he gives a little bit of a gesture that gives the kid away. And you could tell that he seems upset with himself in doing so. And he can't help but yell to the kid as a police officer is taken away to just say nothing and to get a lawyer. And then he goes back to work and he passes out, putting icing on the cinnamon rolls. Perhaps perhaps it's a panic attack of sorts. He seems shaken like he's uh, maybe done something to give himself up or maybe, you know, hurt his chances of of hiding in plain sight. Uh, what did you think of this flash forward, Jerome? Uh, thematically, I think this is the one that seemed to connect to the rest of the season the best because you very see the con- you very clearly see the conflict that exists within Gene slash Jimmy slash Saul in that moment when he tells the cops where the kid is because he doesn't want to have any any negative interactions with cops uh, because there's the possibility that if he gets brought in, then he could be identified and possibly be sent back to New Mexico to pay for his crimes, vast as they are. So 
I think it works a lot better uh, than the first two as far as just connecting to the rest of the season. I also thought it was very interesting uh, that Gene had a Kansas City Royals lunch bag. I don't know if that's significant. I don't know if that means that he is close to the Nebraska-Missouri border, but it is worth pointing out that the Kansas City Royals uh, were a pretty good baseball team for a couple years stretch in the mid uh, in the mid 2010s. So I wonder if there's any connection to that. And it's also fascinating to me because Bob Odenkirk is a huge Cubs fan. Yeah, I think that that's maybe the significance is you can't be around Nebraska with a bunch of Cubs stuff. And even just I think those little slight things he may worry might give him away. So even switching baseball teams, at least publicly for appearances, is a good like little wrinkle to the Gene character, I think. So good catch there. I, I mean, two- I, might, I might be a little bit biased, Kevin, but you wouldn't catch me dead with a Cubs outfit on, to be fair. Well, you also you, you probably just wouldn't have any baseball team association if you were hiding like this and uh, brought your lunch to work. But I don't know. Maybe he thinks it adds a little bit of like a, a little a little a little more to sink your teeth into it, Gene. I don't know. But there are a couple interesting little tidbits about this this scene in the mall and stuff. First of all, the thief is played by Dylan Riley Snyder, who you and I probably have no idea who that is. But apparently he was a featured actor in the Disney XD show Kicking It. And during the day of the shoot, he had several autograph seekers, like more so than Bob Odenkirk. So uh, I didn't know that, but I was, it was fun to hear about that little story. This is someone who, if anybody of age watching Disney X, XD shows is watching, you got to see this guy in the show. Um, the name of the mall in, uh, in New Mexico is the Cottonwood Mall. And of course, the mall is in New Mexico in real life, but in the show, it's supposed to be in Nebraska. And they were worried, like, well, gosh, should we change the name of the mall? What should we do? But as it turns out, the cottonwood is the state tree of Nebraska. So they said, great, we can just keep keep the name of it because you sometimes will see the, the name of the mall in the background scenes. And it still makes sense thematically. So that was kind of just a nice little coincidence that worked out for them. And then for another Gene thing, in the beginning of, of episode eight of this season – we get a flashback to Jimmy and Marco, who has returned for this flashback, Mel Rodriguez, breaking into the abandoned convenience store Jimmy's parents used to own. And from the ceiling, Jimmy pulls out this tin Band-Aid box filled with curious-looking coins he began collecting for good luck. And if you remember, Jerome, back in episode one during the Gene flashback when he pulls out the box of memorabilia and he pulls out the tape that includes all the Saul commercials. The Band-Aid box was in there as well. So this is definitely something that is of at least some significance and importance. And here we see in this flashback at the beginning of episode eight why it's so important to him. And it was for me, it was really great to see Marco again. Yeah, I think anytime you can bring Marco back, you want to do that. Of course, he's not everything that we see is through flashback. And I think it really... It really does uh, some of the character work that makes these shows so special. And again, those little details and the fact that they have this this box and that they've carried it through uh, to Chicago, Nebraska, possibly New Mexico. I mean, that just shows you the the attention to detail that these writing that the writing staff puts into this, and it's uh, it's pretty special. Very much so. So that's all the Gene stuff I have. Did you have anything you want to add about Gene before we get into the heart of season three? I mean, I have a theory on the structure of season six that relates to uh, Gene, but I want to wait until the end of our season five podcast to kind of reveal what my theory is on season six. So Ooh, interesting. That's that's uh, that's that's really all I have to say. But I mean, 
there's there's got to be some payoff. They they wouldn't be doing this every season to remind you that that Gene is in existence. They wouldn't be doing this unless there was some sort of payoff. No, certainly not. Although it is interesting listening to them, it seems like and, and I and I guess this is the kind of good thing about television versus movies is your ideas can ever be changing or you can you need to have some idea that there's going to be a payoff, but you don't need to necessarily have it set in stone. Right. Like in season one, they didn't need to know for certain what's happening in season six. But as they go along and they see how the show develops and all this other things, they can make their decisions. But you're totally right. Something's going to happen in season six. We just don't know what it is. I think it's one of those things where you, when you're creating a television show, I think having a long term plan is a good thing. And I think it's something that you want. But as things develop, as the popularity of characters changes, I think you also have to be adaptable. And I think a show like How I Met Your Mother, I think that's a show specifically that they had a plan. They didn't adjust to how people felt about the show, and it kind of cost them. I think with Better Call Saul, it's very clear that they adapt things and they they have made changes. I think the fact that Kim's character has become more and more prominent – with each successive season, I don't know if that was their plan from the start, but you can definitely see Kim becoming more and more prominent as each season passes by. Definitely, and I also think that they talk a lot about how, in their minds, what they see the character on paper versus how the character portrays it also speaks to how they write the character going forward because the actor or actress who plays them adds a lot of their own insights and idiosyncrasies and they have their own ideas about the character and their backstories and stuff. And so it's a very collaborative effort. That's the thing that impressed me most about listening to this, this year's podcast is it's way more behind the scenes stuff about filming, editing, costume design, all this other stuff, which is interesting. It just isn't kind of the same stuff we cover here, but just how everyone involved in the process from, from the top to the bottom is so character driven in their decisions for the show it's really mind-boggling and it goes to show that when you have something like this where it's such a team effort it really pays off in and how good the show is so yeah I, I definitely think you need to have a plan but also need to to adapt based on several different factors well i think there's a version of this podcast where we could actually just talk about the filmmaking the sound mixing the sound editing all that jazz because i think that there are a lot of tv shows that you wouldn't be able to necessarily do it with because it wouldn't be interesting, but I think Better Call Saul, whenever possible, it feels a lot more cinematic than most basic cable television shows, and just the quality of TV shows in general has gotten better. But with Better Call Saul, especially when Vince Gilligan is directing an episode, like you can tell that the quality of the filmmaking is much higher than your average television show. And I know that Vince Gilligan had a chance to direct a couple of episodes this season, and it, it really shows. I mean, as much as I like Vince Gilligan as a, as a writer, I almost like him more as a director. Yeah, it, it, you just hear about the the amount of work and logistics and all that, what, what makes it so hard, and I think for him – he feels it's more important for him to be in the writer's room than it is directing as much as he enjoys directing and being out there. It's just, especially the split between New Mexico and Los Angeles and all this other stuff. It's, it's a lot. It, it's, it takes a lot of work and effort to get the right people in the right places. And I think he wishes he could direct more, but I think he does feel where he, he's, he feels most needed and where he wants to be most is the writer's room over directing, but you're right. He is a great director. Well, yeah. And I think even in this episode specifically, I think you really see just how meticulous of a director is because we, he shows us 
just how detail oriented Mike is, and I believe that's what we call in the business a transition. We do. Wait, which episode? The first one? In the, in the first one, yeah. Yes. Okay. So we're, first, we're going to talk about Mike's story, kind of like we did last season, and all the other characters and stuff that come with it. And the big question coming out of season two was who found Mike in the desert and warned him to not kill Hector Salamanca? Because last we saw him, he had his sniper rifle all ready to go to kill Hector Salamanca. Then he hears his car horn and someone had left a note from that says don't on his car. So he obviously knows someone has tracked him there. So he pulls into an auto yard and tears his cart apart to try to find where on earth a tracking device could possibly be. And it's not until he's actually sitting down inside of the shop at the auto yard where he sees a gas cap that he realizes, aha, this is where they had it hidden inside the gas cap. Because who would think to look there? So he uses his his uh, source, the vet. I forget his doctor name exactly right now. I'll probably get to it later to get an exact replica of that tracking device so that when it's manually switched out by whoever is tracking him, Mike will now be able to track them as well. Because this is back in, again, like 2002, 2003, where these tracking devices aren't as uh, up to date as like stuff you have on just like your iPhone nowadays. This is something that runs on batteries, needs to be manually changed and whatnot. So Mike gets confused because he ends up tracking the person with a tracking device to Poyos Hermanos of all places. Dun, dun, dun. And he has no idea what to think of this, but whomever has tracked them knows who Mike is. So he gets some Saul to do some reconnaissance work for him because if they know who Mike is. He can't just go walk into Poyos Hermanos. So he gets Saul to enjoy some breakfast, watch the guy with the backpack, see what he does. And he doesn't see anything. He does see, uh, however, somebody cleaning. He doesn't really mention this because it's so nondescript. But he does decide to look inside the trash can to see if this gentleman maybe left some cash or something else inside of there. And this is where we get Saul's very first interaction with Gustavo Frame, played once again by the incomparable Giancarlo Esposito. And this, I'm, I'm sad it was spoiled for you. On on Netflix, but uh, a lot of fans have kind of figured out Gus was coming back, and I'll tell you why in a second. But God, it's good to see Gus Fring back in this universe. Yeah, I mean, I knew it was coming. I sort of, even without being spoiled, I figured that Gus was going to be a part of the show at some point, and I think this is an appropriate amount of time. I think introducing him in season one or two would have felt a little bit too fan servicey and. Like they were just trying to get him on the show as quickly as possible. But I think bringing him in in season three, when you're a couple seasons in, you've established the characters outside of Gus a little bit more. And quite honestly, I think when you look at the drug, the drug dealer angle aspect of the show in season two, I think it was suffering a little bit. I don't know if from a creative standpoint, if they were feeling that too, and it's like, well, now's the time uh, that we should bring Gus in or whether it was part of their plan all along. But I think this is a good time to bring in Gus because it definitely, it definitely made the drug dealer part of the show more compelling. And I was definitely paying closer attention to it because I knew Gus was involved. Even if he wasn't in a scene, I was definitely paying attention more to the drug deal storyline that I was in season two. And I think that's a byproduct of bringing in uh, the Giancarlo Esposito. And this is somebody who, I mean, this fall is just around so much Kevin Ford. You know, of course he was in Better Call Saul. 
He is also in The Boys, season two, and he is also on The Mandalorian. So he is arguably on three of the most popular shows of 2020. And that's pretty amazing to think about and just speaks to what this role has done for him because he's been around for a long time. He is he was even in a movie, Do the Right Thing. He's been in a number of Spike Lee movies. And so he's been around for a long time, but this role has clearly established him as one of the most sought-after television actors of this decade and the previous decade, and uh, that's pretty special. Um, so I, w- I want to go back to Mike, uh, if you before you, if, but before if you have anything to add about Gus, the only thing I want to add about Gus is they at least had the idea for him to come back at the end of season one, and I say that because you may remember in Jerome in season two of Breaking Bad, they hid amongst the titles of the episodes uh seven thirty seven down over ABQ to foreshadow the Wayfarer five fifteen crash. Well as you can imagine the diehard fans began examining the episode titles as they came out to see if they can get any clues. And in season two of Better Call Saul they did leave a clue. If you take the first letter of all ten episodes and unscramble them, you spell out Fring's back. And this was discovered very quickly by Better Call Saul fans. And they were dying for him to come back. And I think there was a lot of people when episode one of season three aired and he didn't return, were kind of upset about it. But he comes back in episode two. So it's like, okay, okay, you know, he's coming. We're going to get to it. Relax. Here he is. So it's one of those things where they did it. They're trying to be a little bit clever and fans found it so fast. I don't think they've done it again since because it was so discovered by so many people that was like, oh, we thought maybe a handful of people would do it. But yeah, like because of the Internet age and all this stuff, it spread like wildfire. So uh, the Gus return wasn't as big of a deal as it may have been if people didn't know. Uh, I did not know this title thing, but I definitely knew he was coming back when I was watching season three live on the air. So. That's all I want to say about Gus's return for now. And uh, so you can tell me what you want to say about Mike here. Uh, I really like in the first episode when they show Mike just breaking down the car and looking in every nook and cranny of it. I think that is because we've heard we know that Mike is a detail oriented person just on the way that he talks and how smart he is and how intelligent he is. But you really see that in this scene. And I'm a big fan of, uh, of showing, not telling, and this is an example of that. And just the fact that they they spent, what, five, ten minutes just having him break down a car? I mean, this is – they could be doing a lot with those five to ten minutes story-wise, and they chose to just have Mike do this. And I think it's, I think it's a really – it's a really good move on their part because it just it further builds Mike's character uh, in this kind of extended montage and the fact that he comes away and realizes it's the fuel cap. I mean, that's just such a natural thing for him to do. Only Mike is the type of person uh, who would do that. And I also want to point out at the end of uh, the first episode and talking about attention to detail, uh, there's a point where Mike is once again listening to the radio. And he is listening to the Steve Ricketts radio show, and that is real, Kevin Ford. That is a real radio show in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah, those are the types of details that they got people on. Tremendous, tremendous work, even in episode one of getting this character of Mike across. And even in episode two, I mean, the Saul, Saul in Los Poyos Hermanos, <laughs> because you're just waiting for it. Like, And yep. they know it, and we know it. 
And uh, it's it's a pretty fantastic moment. And that yellow shirt that Gus wears gets me every time because it's just so – it's what you would expect the owner of like a, a kind of a, a fast food joint. I don't want to say second rate because apparently – now, the idea that I get across, the idea that comes across is that Los Pollos Hermanos, yes, it is fast food. But it's kind of like a higher end, like, like a Zaxby's, like – one of those places, like a chicken place that you would want to go to, even though it's fast food or even Chick-fil-A for whatever you think of the politics of Chick-fil-A, like people actually enjoy the fast food. It's not like you're dre- It's not like you hate going there and only go there when you're drunk. Like this is actually reasonably good food. Yeah, that's the impression I get. And obviously quality is of, of something that they take very seriously. They're obviously quite successful. Uh, as we see in, in Breaking Bad, they talk about expansion and how well they're doing uh, in all this other business. And yeah, with the yellow shirt and everything else, Gus is really dressing the part as somebody who really takes the role of the manager of uh, Poyos Hermano seriously, uh, you know, even dressing kind of to the aesthetic of the store and the institution. And he seems like a genuinely great boss to work for. Uh, you know, later his his employees are shaken and he gives them all full pay for the rest of the day, plus another full pay, day's pay and offers to pay for anybody who needs to, you know, seek therapy or anything else about anything that's gone down. So he genuinely seems like a really great person to work for, even if I'm, I'm sure part of this is paying for their silence and to, you want to keep your employees happy. So not to raise suspicions or anything of that nature, but still, it seems like if you're going to work for a fast food restaurant, this is probably the best place to do it. Uh, let's see. Would I rather work for the drug dealing murderer or would I rather work for the capitalist? Hmm. I mean, it's amazing that I would choose the drug dealing murderer. Are there? Are they? Aren't they not the same thing? I, uh, I'm not going to touch that one right now. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on then. Gus and Mike eventually do meet up in the desert, where Gus tells Mike that he will agree to stop tracking Mike and his whereabouts if Mike agrees to not kill Hector Salamanca because he wants to keep him alive for now. Uh, but he does, however, encourage Mike to continue disrupting Hector's drug business as he is a competitor to Gus. And Mike is uh, able to plant some cocaine on one of Hector's delivery trucks in a very clever way involving a pair of shoes in the desert. This is another scene that I thought was done super well. And Mike uh, ultimately refuses payment from Gus, saying that what he did to the truck is something that he did for himself and doesn't feel like he needs payment for it. And Gus comments that he would like Mike to work for him, and Mike seems interested depending on the work. We know at some point that these two do become intertwined in their work relationship, and this is kind of the start of it, this mutual admiration society. Or at least there's an admiration from Gus towards the work Mike does, and I think the type of man he is to not accept a very hefty cash payment for what he does to Hector Salamanca's truck. Yeah, I think that you definitely see that mutual respect, and you, you Gus clearly notices that Mike is a very detail-oriented person. And as a, as a drug dealer, I think that's something that you want. You want somebody who is going to keep clean, who has some integrity, because as we, as we have seen so many times, drug dealers uh, do not have a lot of integrity. And I think that that's, that's one of the highlights of, of this part of the storyline is the interactions between Mike and Gus, because we got a little bit of it in Breaking Bad, but we didn't get a lot of it. And I think that it's it's clear that the writers really wanted to have Jonathan Banks and Giancarlo Esposito have as many interactions as humanly possible because this is this is the time to take advantage of it. And it's very much appreciated because they're two, they're two really good actors and their characters are 
very similar in a lot of ways, but very different in kind of the way that they operate. And I think what you get a lot of in this season is you get a lot of the mechanics of the drug dealing, which you did not necessarily get in the past with Breaking Bad because it was so hyper-focused on one person. But you kind of get an idea of how of how the drug dealing works. And I think that's, that is much appreciated because the thing that, that strikes me and is so interesting is because of a show like Breaking Bad coming out and because it became so popular, Netflix decided that they kind of wanted to keep going in this direction. And they have since released a show called Narcos and Ozark, which are also kind of similar in some ways, very different in others. And I, we could talk about Ozark. I don't really like Ozark because I think it's too much of a ripoff of Breaking Bad in many ways. But a show like Narcos is very much getting into the weeds of, of how drug dealing mechanics work. And Better Call Saul and Narcos even share a couple of the same actors, one of whom is, uh, is in this very season. He plays uh, the actor whose name I don't have in front of me, uh, but he's the guy that comes in and is short on money, and uh, Nacho eventually brings him back in and beats him up a little bit. But he was an actor on Narcos as well, and it was just a reminder of just how, how influential Breaking Bad has been and how Better Call Saul in some ways is, is continuing that. But in some ways, I think it's it's kind of a challenge because I think people have gotten into what drug dealers do and have become so interested in this. So you're talking about Crazy Eight, the the character in Breaking Bad, and he's played by Max Arciniega. Yes. So there you go. So I think you talk about showing versus telling, and I think a great instance of this is the flashback to or, or I guess it's not a flashback. It's a flashback for us, but it's in the continuity of here. At Don Eladio's estate, we know that Gus ends up killing him and a bunch of his associates, but this time they're still on good terms and both Gus and Hector reporting to him. And this scene is a perfect way to show the difference between the operations of Hector and Gus. Because Hector delivers the cash himself to Don Eladio and a bunch of rolled up wads carried together by Band-Aids, while Gus sends a representative with a leather briefcase full of clean, stacked, wrapped up bills, which impresses Don Eladio enough to demand the same from Hector going forward and they both get gifts. Don Eladio ridicules this bobblehead gifted to him by Hector as well as their ice cream shop, which is their front that uh, gets compromised because of the truck incident being named in his honor. But he's delighted with the gift of a Poyos Hermanos t-shirt from Gus. So you could tell that Gus is definitely the favorite of Don Eladio and how he carries his business. And this for sure sticks in Hector Salamanca's craw. Yeah, I think that's it's a really great scene. It was great to see him back. It's great to see that that setback because it was it's very memorable because visually it's so different than anything that you see in Albuquerque. And yeah, I think that you really see kind of the rise and fall of these of these two different organizations. The Saltamaco organization is is sort of on the way down, and Gus Fring's organization is on the way up. And I think we got we definitely got that impression in Breaking Bad of where they were, but you're kind of setting up just how we got to this point and we you kind of see that you kind of see this person uh, that Hector is and we've heard so much more from Hector in this run of episodes that we did on Breaking Bad but you could also see that you know he's also having a lot of difficulty uh, with his heart problems in combination with the fact that he knows that Gus is on the way up and one of the things that I wrote down here is 
I, I because there's there's a lot of discussion about kind of their businesses and and one of the some of the issues that exist. But I wonder if kind of colorism comes into play here because Gus is obviously because of his background and because visually he's you know he's black and he's has a darker complexion whereas a lot of his compatriots are lighter so i wonder if that's something uh did the writers ever talk about that no not at all because i know that that is definitely an issue that exists in communities of color light color versus dark colored yeah that is interesting i also think it's just the difference of when we get to the transportation trucks you have pollo hermanos as this established fast food chain and then you have like this dinky little ice cream truck that's transporting across the border. One just happens to look a little more shiftier than the other two. So I think there's there's that nature of it as well. And it actually gets to the point because that ice cream truck gets hijacked that Hector hijacks one of Gus's stores during operating hours. And Gus has to leave his uh, his outside of work business he's taking care of to return and square up with Hector where he demands that transport of Hector's drugs is going to now be through Gus's trucks, at least temporarily until they can get things back in order. And even Hector has Nacho during a meeting where they're taking bricks of cocaine say, hey, take an extra brick and see what happens. And when they call Gus, he allows them to to have the extra brick. And it's during this call we see Gus is out because he is investigating what will be the future home of Walton Jesse's super lab, the laundromat. And who put Gus's eyes on the property? None other than Lydia Rodart Quayle, played once again by Lord, Laura Frazier. I got to say, I wasn't necessarily expecting Lydia to return here. No, that was actually a very big surprise. I figured if Lydia was going to come back, it would either be in season four or season five. But uh, it was it was definitely it was definitely quite something to see her just there out of out of nowhere and to have such a brief part. And it's like did they really bring her back just for this one scene? But no, they did bring her back uh, for uh, another scene as well, a little bit later in the season. But yeah, I mean, you definitely, you definitely got to see kind of Gus operating a little bit more. The one thing we don't really see as much as we don't see the kind of the vicious side of Gus as much. I wonder that's something that I'm thinking about. Is that something that's going to pop up in seasons four and five? But I mean, a lot of what we see of Gus is just him being kind of the, the nice pleasant Gus with just a hint of darkness as opposed to him just, you know, slitting someone's throat. Exactly right. And speaking of slitting someone's throat, his associates at the time are Victor and Tyrus from the Breaking Bad universe. And I thought it was interesting to see them both in the same scene because not only they both end up dead, but it's because Gus slits Victor's throat, Tyrus replaces him. So to see them in the same place at the same time is interesting just because we never got to see that in Breaking Bad. Yeah, you know, the writers were really excited about that one. Yes. Uh, Well, we haven't talked about Nacho a lot here yet, but this all becomes personal to him because, like I said, the the measures of using Gus's trucks in Hector's mind is temporary. And what he wants to do is converting Nacho's father's upholstery shop as their new front, which Nacho is not down with at all. His father is a very honest, hardworking man who would probably report them to the police if this were ever to be discussed. Nacho also understands that Hector is not someone who will take no lightly. If only there was a way to possibly deal with him. And this idea pops in his head when 
Nacho witnesses that during a fit of anger, uh, you know, Hector has a coughing fit related to his heart issues and his associate wanting to get medicine, which gives Nacho the idea of how to neutralize him. And that's by replacing his heart medicine with identical looking placebos. And who do you need to get your pill casing Jerome? None other than Daniel Wormwald. I bet you were very happy to see him again. It's very clear to me that the writers love having Daniel back. And I'm not going to say that the excuse was flimsy, but of the ways that they have brought him onto the show, this is definitely kind of the flimsiest. And it's obvious they would do this because they like him as an actor. They like having him around. And that's a good thing because I think he does this role really well. And it's, it's easy to say that somebody is playing this role in the same thing over and over again. But my counter to that argument is this is not something that a lot of actors can do. And if he could do it well, then this is what he should be doing as long as people are going to pay him for the rest of his career. And, I mean, look at what he's done on what we do in the shadows. I mean, that that show is incredible. And he's kind of been able to to carve out uh, a niche for himself. And Better Call Saul is just uh, another another representation of that. And, I mean, it's so great when he uh, when he talks to Mike and convinces Mike to come back and we get more scenes with uh, – with Mike and Nacho is Mike. Every time he tries to get out, they just keep pulling him back into this, into this drug world. And uh, it's, it's really fascinating. And yeah, I, you know, they, they talk about Nacho's dad possibly being a front. That seems like a really poor front for drug dealing, especially at this point. Like, how is that going to work? Well, I think it would just be that he, a lot of the operations and stuff happens there. And it's supposed to be like a, and I think they probably have a lot of upholstery deliveries and things like that they could have the trucks with. But honestly, I think Hector is desperate to not be under Gus's thumb as for as long as he can be. He's intimidated him into this, but I, I think he wants to disassociate as fast as he can. And this is the closest business. It's someone who can't say no to him. So I think it's it's something that, it, again, it's just this is the closest thing I can do for now. And then maybe this will, again, be a temporary measure till they get yet another front to go. I don't think... Hector is thinking very long-term here. Clearly. I mean, because, I mean, he probably knows that he's not going to be around for the long term. Probably not. Well, the other thing you said, you said that about them, it's obvious that they like Daniel because they keep bringing him back. So he originally auditioned to be Craig Kettleman in season one, and they didn't, he didn't fit that character necessarily, but they more or less in, invented this character of Price, Daniel, because they liked Mark Prox so much and wanted him to be a part of the show. So you're not wrong. Because the show is a little bit lighter in tone, it's very obvious that they wanted to have uh, a lot more a lot more of a comedy touch. And I know we talked a lot about comedians being a part of Breaking Bad, but we didn't necessarily get to them get to see them be comedic. Whereas in Better Call Saul, I think that they bring in these comedians. We'll talk about uh, a prominent duo a little bit later but they are definitely able to be kind of funnier. Absolutely. Fortunately, Daniel does not make the same mistake twice as when he has this, this trade off with Nacho, he once again, hires Mike to come with him and Mike gets a chance to talk to Nacho about what he's doing to Hector. And he, he wants to make sure that Nacho is considering all of the consequences and he has all of his bases covered because of how high ranking somebody of Hector Salamanca is. So I like this scene a lot that Mike's making sure Nacho knows what he's really getting into by doing this with, with Hector. Yeah. I think we get a little bit more pathos with Nacho and I think it's necessary to, to have some sympathy for him because 
he we we don't kind of know what's going to happen to him so i think it's it's easy to invest in his character because we don't ultimately know how he is going to meet his demise or whether he's something's going to happen whereas with mike and gus we we know what happens ultimately and even hector we kind of know how things pay off but i think it's that's why it's important for this show to make us invested in nacho in kim and Hamlin and Chuck, because we don't know what's happening to these characters necessarily. So I think that's something else that the show really has to do well, is to just build up these other characters so that we have a reason to watch Better Call Saul every week, because that's the tricky part with prequels, is that you kind of know how everything pays, but with Nacho, we don't. So we can invest in his story so much more. And I I really like the scenes with Nacho just being by himself and try to flip the bottle of pills uh, into the uh, into the coat jacket. I mean, those those are just really well done scenes, and I really appreciated the work that they put in to show him literally practicing. Because I think when you see it in TV shows and movies, they just do it, and it comes off as being effortless. But in this case, we see the work that he has put in, and he's coming in early before his father comes to work so that he can practice this, and then when he does it, it you feel his accomplishment. And it's stressful watching him try to accomplish it. Like, is he going to get away with it, too? It's also very well done, because at the end of the day, he's in this drug world, but he's a seamstress. That's like his job, is working at this upholstery shop, so I wouldn't expect him to be this sleight of hand like uh, another character we'll see a little bit later on in the Saul section of this episode. Uh, so yeah, I, I appreciated all of that stuff with this, and it, and it made the payoff much more satisfying. Uh, but speaking of Mike, and we talked about Lydia coming back for another scene, Mike realizes that he has all this money he stole from Hector, and he needs to avoid suspicion by laundering it. So Gus sets him up through Madrigal, the organization Lydia works for, to be hired as a security consultant. And that will be the way that he gets to have his money laundered, that he can be able to spend it. And I will say just for season four, the laundromat, Mike is a security consultant. All this comes into very heavy play in the in uh, season four. So this is not the last you've seen of this stuff, and this does go somewhere. Uh, and it's fun to see it all kind of get into place before – as someone who knows where season four goes, seeing all the pieces kind of put together. But that's really it for Mike in the season. He definitely plays a lesser role in season two, and I think that's just kind of by necessity when you're introducing Gus into the ecosystem and Hector plays such a big role. Yeah, I mean there's a lot also going on with the Jimmy storyline, so I think Mike definitely has to take a back seat. But I think we do need to mention what happens to Hector at the end of season three. Of course, yes. So uh, we talked about how Hector and Gus – their transport situation was supposed to be temporary, but Don Eladio decides that it has gone so well and it's much riskier having more trucks out there than fewer that this relationship is going to continue indefinitely. And this is not an outcome either Hector or Gus wanted, and Hector doubles down on taking over Nacho's father's business. And Nacho has to have a conversation, a very hard conversation with his father that his father doesn't want to agree to. And then Hector comes to the store and Nacho talks his father into very reluctantly accepting the cash payment. And this is when Nacho decides he's going to plan an ambush. What happens is that he gets pulled into a meeting with Gus and Hector and Juan Bolsa. Bolsa is the uh, like the Don Eladio's assistant who takes care of a lot of the business. And Bolsa informs them that Gus will now handle the border smuggling operations for both groups. And Hector 
in a rage, suffers a heart attack. And Nacho, he takes the advice Mike gave him and makes sure to switch out the pills when the other bodyguard is off calling for an ambulance. But Gus notices, and he seems very suspicious, as Hector, suffering a heart attack, is taken off to the hospital and ambulance. And that's where we leave them at the end of Season 3. Yeah, and we know that Gus and Hector do not have a good relationship, so... How Gus handles Nacho is something I'm looking forward to because I don't necessarily think that he's just going to be like, well, look what you did to Hector. Now I'm going to murder you. I don't necessarily think that that's going to be the case. I think it's going to be a little bit more nuanced and it'll be uh, it'll be fascinating. But the, the impression that you get with the difference between Hector and Gus is that Gus is a very corporate type of person and very meticulous and very top down organized and Hector is kind of your mom and pop place. And this is kind of a corporate takeover. I think it's the metaphor is very clear to me with what they're going for. And I think it makes a lot of sense, especially because this is something that happens in legal businesses all the time. And for me, that's all the notes I have on this part of the story for the season with Mike and Gus and Hector. Is there anything else you want to mention before moving on? I just liked watching Mike and Lydia interact. Their scene, I think, was just very good to watch. And even though it wasn't necessarily directly tied to the plot, I think Lydia is always a fascinating character just because she is very much in the the legitimate world, even more so than Gus, because her ties are not as direct. So, yeah, I mean, just having her around is really interesting because of of her character. And I, I love Jonathan Banks and... I, I hope that we get to see him more in seasons four and five now that I think a couple of the characters, the roles are going to be significantly lessened. So I'm hoping that we get to see more of Jonathan Banks and Mike uh, moving forward. Yeah, it did seem like in season two that they kind of, I don't want to say they ran out of stuff for Mike, but it just didn't feel like he on his own with his family and even the little bit of ties we got into the drug dealing stuff was was enough meat on the bone to really hold your hold interest in flesh out this secondary story for the show. So now that we have the elements of Gus and everything else in here, it feels like a more robust story to sink your teeth into. So it's definitely, from my perspective, a more satisfying watch than season two. So I think what what my view is, is that this this show seems to have gone out of its way to not have a family dynamic play into what's going on, with the exception of Mike and his granddaughter, which was pre-established in Breaking Bad already, you don't really have any family dynamics. Chuck is divorced. Kim and Jimmy are in a relationship, but they don't have kids together, and it seems like they're kind of hot and cold sometimes. You don't really get a sense of Gus's family, whether he is with a partner or whether he's married or anything. You, You get a little bit with Nacho and his father, but they're both adults. So this show has... I appreciate the fact that They're not trying to tell the family story like they were in Breaking Bad because I think it would come off as as repetitive. And I think keeping these shows as totally different as possible, I think, is important for its success. Yes, I agree with that completely. So now we will get into the real big stuff from season three, and that is the Jimmy side of the equation. So the question coming out of season two was what will Chuck do with Jimmy's confession tape? We actually see in the first episode, Jimmy is helping Chuck get his house back into normal, and they actually have a nice moment when they're reminiscing about their childhood, but Chuck shuts whatever window of hope and opportunity there may be pretty quickly, telling Jimmy no, he will pay for what he did. So Chuck ends up playing the tape for Howard, who now believes Chuck's story, 
However, he knows the tape is no good in the court of law or the court of public opinion. But Chuck has an idea of its utility. You know, Ernesto is someone from HHM who's been helping him out now that Jimmy's no longer helping him. And he has Ernesto change the batteries in the tape recorder. And when it plays, Chuck pretends as if it were an accident and expresses how important it is for Ernesto to keep this quiet, knowing full well that he's going to take the information to Kim or Jimmy. And he does take it to Kim, who makes Jimmy pay her so she can tell him the information under attorney-client privilege about the tape. Kim isn't sure what Chuck can do with the tape, so she advises Jimmy to stay put until Chuck takes action. (sighs) Jimmy just couldn't listen to her, could he? I mean, this is the problem. If Kimmy just listened to Kim more, his life would be so much easier. I think if we all listen to Kim, I think our lives would just be much better. I think so, too. So, no, Jimmy doesn't listen. He literally kicks in Chuck's door, gives him an earful, also finding and destroying the tape, threatening to burn the house down to make sure whatever copies he may have are destroyed. And Chuck knows full well this is what's going to happen to the point where he had a private investigator hired. Howard happened to be making a visit at the time. So both of them can bear witness to Jimmy's action, giving Chuck cause to call for his arrest. And he's framing to Jimmy that this arrest and pressing charges as tough love to make so Jimmy can make the changes he needs. And he promises to help him walk the path to get there. And Jimmy has to spend a night in jail. But he unfortunately has no priors and has ties to the community. So he's able to make bail at twenty five hundred dollars. And during this process, he also very publicly turns down Kim as his attorney as she comes in to try to stand in for him to to help him out. Because it's always a bad idea to be your own attorney. But Jimmy later explains to her that he didn't want to distract her from her Mesa Verde work, which uh, turned out to be a a good reason to not do it for, with Kim and her Mesa Verde work. But uh, it goes to show that even though there may be some animosity in what Jimmy does, they do see him as a value to the community because all the work he's done and uh, just a night in jail is all he has to, has to spend. But, man, so much damage between Jimmy and Chuck here going on early. Well, and they – the community has not seen that every everything that Jimmy has done. We we see it as audience members, but these are not things that would necessarily be known to the community. So that's why he's able to get away with what he's able to get away with. And I think what you see in this season is you see a lot of Jimmy, the tension that exists between who he who he is and I think who he wants to be. I think he wants to be a good person. I think he wants to be a good attorney. But he keeps getting pulled back into doing these very shady things and these very crappy things. And undoubtedly, his relationship, I think calling his relationship with Chuck Toxic would be probably one of the greatest understatements that I could ever make on this podcast because it's very destructive. They do not have a positive relationship. And the best thing for both of them would be to have just separated and to not interact or talk with each other. But they just can't help themselves because Chuck is a very arrogant person. And I don't think that this is something the show has really addressed in the first two seasons. I think they've hinted at it. I can't help but compare because they're in the same universe. Chuck is basically the closest that we have to Walter White. And I say that because Chuck exhibits a lot of the same arrogance. He exhibits some of the same personality traits and I think that for Chuck, he's a, he's also a slightly more successful version because th- how he comes across is he is a very – he's a big fish in a medium pond because the medium pond is Albuquerque 
And I would assume that Albuquerque is not the type of place where you have a lot of high-end law firms and attorneys. We know that there are a couple, but Chuck is able to control so much of what's happening. It seems like he knows everybody, the prosecutors, the people who are going to judge his brother on the bar. They know, He knows and is so tied into this community that he's able to control so much. I can't imagine a scenario where somebody who is clearly ex- exhibiting symptoms of a mental illness is able to just tell people to turn their phones off and to shut all the electricity off. I just – I can't imagine working in a New York City law firm and somebody being able to ask to do that. So that just shows you the level of control that Chuck has. And Chuck even has a ton of control over Howard and the business and the law firm. And that's the thing that you see – I have seen in the first couple seasons, but this this third season – really magnifies is that Chuck is somebody who wants to be in control at all times. And if he doesn't get his way, then he's going to do everything he can to manipulate the situation to get what he wants. And he could talk. And I think that he talks about, Oh, it's in the spirit of the law and the law and the law and about, you know, trying to do what's quote unquote right for the law. But the reality is, is that he is always going to do what is right for Chuck. And, if that means screwing over his brother and maybe his brother is a bad person and doesn't shouldn't be a lawyer, but that's ultimately not for Chuck to decide. And that's the thing that I realized in the end is that, is that Chuck is just as bad as Jimmy in a lot of ways. It's just that Chuck hides it a lot better. I'm so glad you said that. Cause I think what this season reveals is Chuck is just as equally manipulative as Jimmy can be. We see it with the tape. We see it last season when he does the the double speak to get Mesa Verde away from Kim and back under HHM. He is equally capable of doing the things Jimmy does, and he has his own ways to justify his actions and say it's for the greater good or it's just business, it's not personal, so on and so forth. But the fact that Chuck thinks that he is better or above Jimmy just because he doesn't associate with some of the 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 ne'er-do-wells that jimmy may do and just because maybe he is more successful and has his name on a law firm that has a positive reputation it's all the same thing it's all this manipulation it's all of this this shadiness uh but because of who chuck is and because he's so prideful his work that he can justify him doing it uh and trying to save Jimmy in other ways but really when you boil it down to its, its essence it is more or less the same thing I mean, when Chuck talks about the law and doing what's right, it's the it is the equivalent of when Walt says he's doing the drug dealing for the sake of his family. It's the same. Right. It's the same concept. He's doing it for himself. Yep. And and hey, even he admits it by the end. That's that's what's true. Um, Absolutely. So, so so okay. So before we so what this all boils down to is that Chuck wants to get Jimmy disbarred. Because what he does is he get, he presents Jimmy with a pre-prosecution diversion through this this prosecutor who's an outside source because like you said, Chuck has too many ties in New Mexico as does Jimmy that they, they need somebody who's not going to be biased. And what this PPD says is that Jimmy can avoid jail if he confesses everything he did in writing, which now includes assault, to the New Mexico Bar Association, which will very likely disbar him if he does this. And given that Chuck has really boxed Jimmy in, he finally agrees to take Kim's help in fighting Chuck in court. And we actually have this face-to-face PPD meeting where it's Hank and Chuck on one side and Jimmy and Kim on the other. 
and Kyra Hay, who's the prosecutor in the middle. They finalize Jimmy's written confession. Kyra has Jimmy make a face-to-face apology to Chuck. And most importantly, afterwards, Kin confirms with Chuck post-meeting that there is an existence of a second tape. And meanwhile, Jimmy hired Mike to infiltrate Chuck's house under the guise of a repairman to snap some photographs of his home in the shape it's in and to retrieve some personal info from Chuck's address book. And I'm going to go into episode five in great detail here in a second, but anything you want to mention from those few scenes? So there are a lot of hints throughout the season that Chuck is going to bite it, so to speak. The fact that they have Mike enter the house, because up until this point, we had not had a scene between Jonathan Banks and Michael McKeon, and I got the sense in this scene, and there are a lot of, there are a lot of hints, and I'll get into all of them by the end. But one of the things that really struck me was the fact that they finally had these two have a scene together. And this made me realize, I wonder if Chuck is going to make it to the end of the season. And this was definitely one of those things that I was thinking about as the scene was happening. But it's a great scene because Mike is just messing around with Chuck and, and using the drill. And again, I, I talked about in the Breaking Bad episodes, the, the use of ambient noise and more great use of ambient noise with the drill and just get and scaring Chuck completely away to where, again, because Chuck loves being in control so, so much. And the fact that Mike is using this drill and Chuck wants things done his own way, but Mike kind of does things his own way. It was, uh, it was a great, it was a great scene between these two, albeit too short, but ultimately it, it's all building up to probably the most, in, it, the most important scene of this show is in episode five. Yes, episode five titled Chicanery. This is Jimmy's trial in front of the New Mexico Bar Association to determine his future as a lawyer. Uh, I will go on record in saying this is my favorite episode of Better Call Saul, and I think it rivals or at least holds up to the better episodes of, of Breaking Bad. The feeling I got when I first watched it was still there. The second time watching it, it is truly amazing. Go out of your way to watch it. I think it's a crime that Michael McKean did not get uh, an Emmy nomination for this episode. But I digress. We'll go into the details of the episode, which actually starts with a, a pretty long, relatively recent flashback where Chuck's ex-wife, Rebecca, is over for dinner at his house. Now, we know it's relatively recent because Chuck has all of his electro-hypersensitivity symptoms, and Jimmy is there to help facilitate, as Chuck is kind of hoping to win her back while also hiding all of his symptoms, and they manufacture the story about the electricity going out and everything's going really, really well. Although Chuck eventually becomes overwhelmed because Rebecca takes a cell phone call from her boss during the meeting and that plan goes awry and she ends up leaving. But we see that Chuck is going out of his way to hide his symptoms from his ex-wife and ordering to, to win him back. And it's important. We see this scene for what comes into the present. And even, I think you had mentioned that you knew something was up when this flashback was, much longer than the other flashbacks we had seen so far. This flashback is nearly 10 minutes long. That tells me that there is going to be a lot that is going to happen as a result of this flashback, that they are going to call back to this in some ways because they have talked about Rebecca before. I think they've got, they went out of their way to mention that she was not dead, even though I think that that's something that was a very real possibility in the first season, but we have since learned that they, they are separated and this scene was very well done. And Cusack does 
a very good job of playing Rebecca. I can't think of anything that I've seen Anne Cusack in, but she definitely sounds like her sister, Joan. That's one thing that definitely comes across. But I think that they just, they, they have a really good chemistry together. And just this, uh, this scene was really good. And again, I love the scenes when you get Jimmy and Chuck in a room together. I think that there, there definitely were not as many of those in this season, but when they did happen, they certainly counted. Yes, they did. In this scene, the rest of it takes place at this at this courtroom for this hearing. So it's, it's important to remember at this point that Jimmy believes Chuck has completely scorched the earth when it comes to their relationship. So because Chuck has pushed him to the point of possible disbarment, Jimmy really feels he has no point but to retaliate in kind. And if, hey, if the earth is scorched, then might as well go all in. So they're really framing this as Kim arguing that this is all a personal vendetta from Chuck, where Chuck and his prosecution is basically saying Jimmy has no right to be in the world of law. And Jimmy's plan works in three ways. First, they know that Chuck's going to introduce the tape as evidence, which gives them the opportunity to ask questions in regards to his EHS with relevance to the case. Now, with Rebecca, Jimmy invites Rebecca to the case, telling her over the phone of Chuck's illness, and she ends up sitting in on the court, which further brings discomfort and humiliation to Chuck, who had worked to keep this a secret and, of course, under oath. He cannot be dishonest. And then you get to part three. As Jimmy needed Chuck to explode and admit that his reasoning for Jimmy's disembarment was personal, not professional. And this plan involves somebody with a light touch. And Dr. Caldera, that's the name of the vet. He knows just the guy for this plan. And Jerome, you may remember on our last podcast, I had said that there's a fan favorite that returns. And I was so delighted when you, you thought you knew who I was talking about, but you had no idea. We have the return of Huel Babineau. I am so excited for to see him the first time. I almost missed it. I rewound specifically because he is a, he's a very distinct looking individual. So I went back and indeed it was Huel and I got really excited because I knew that if they're going to bring him back under these circumstances in this episode, that it was going to be for an important reason. The other thing that I want to highlight about this episode is that yes, this is very much about Jimmy and Chuck, but they go out of their way to show Kim being a good lawyer and asking good questions and trapping trapping Howard on the question of nepotism. I think that was a really kind of underrated moment. One thing that could give, could easily get lost under the circumstances, but that's the thing that I really love about this episode is that even though Jimmy does interrogate his brother at the end, a lot of the work that is done in this episode that is so good comes from Kim and her her defending Jimmy and the fact that she is doing a very good job. I think that is so important to realize that it's not just Jimmy manipulating and Jimmy's kind of doing it. He kind of he he handles his brother, but a lot of the other legwork is done by Kim and it's uh it's pretty fantastic and I I've talked about tropes in the past that I don't enjoy in TVs and movies. But, Kevin, when it comes to legal dramas, the moment whenever a judge or, or somebody who is in charge of the proceedings, whenever they tell the attorney, like, they're skating on thin ice or that they need to, you know, wrap this up or something, that's when I get excited because I know that the big blow-up moment is coming. So I love those moments, Kevin Ford. As do I. And, yes, we do get a big blow-up moment here in front of the court. Uh, but what Huell does 
is he as as Chuck is taking the stairs to the courtroom, Hewell's going down, bumps into him and unbeknownst to Chuck, places a fully charged phone battery in his breast pocket. Revealing this in the courtroom proves that Chuck's condition is mental, not physical, they had been stating, which embarrasses him in front of his colleagues and his ex-wife. And this is what causes the meltdown where his his rant more or less expresses his disdain for Jimmy as an individual and it isn't until he literally begins to beg the panel to dispar Jimmy that he realizes everyone in the room is just stunned, silent by both this revelation and his outburst. You think this is bad? This this chicanery? He's done worse. That's billboard. Are you telling me that a man just happens to fall like that? No, he orchestrated it. Jimmy. He defecated through a sunroof. And I saved him. I shouldn't have. I took him into my own firm. What was I thinking? He'll never change. He'll never change ever since he was nine. Always the same. Couldn't keep his hands out of the cash drawer. But not our Jimmy. Couldn't be precious Jimmy. Stealing them blind. And he gets to be a lawyer. What a sick joke. I should have stopped him when I had the chance. And you, you have to stop him. I have to say, Jimmy seems somber at the end of this episode about what he had to do. It seemed to bring him at least some level of pain to to do this to Chuck. But again, what choice did Chuck leave him is what it kind of comes down to. Don't put Jimmy in a corner, right? That's You can't do that because then this is going to happen. And the fact that Chuck could not see this coming just establishes once again – how arrogant of an individual he is. The fact that he couldn't see that his brother would do literally everything possible to do this. And, and Chuck should know better because it's his own brother. And I'm not going to say he got what he deserved, but I think in a lot of ways, this was the chickens coming home to roost because it's one of those things where I think movies and TV shows don't do a good job of portraying mental illness. And I think in a lot of ways they could do a better job, but it's also worth noting that just because one, a person has a mental illness, give that person a right to be an asshole and does not give that person the right to try and control everything the way that Chuck has. And I think that is the, the overall message is that just because you are this way does not give you the right to behave however you want And I think, again, that's similar to the way that Breaking Bad was as well, that just because Walt has cancer does not give him the right to do what he was doing. So that has been a consistent thematic element of both of these shows, that just because you have an illness of some sort, that does not give you the right to be an arrogant asshole. No, definitely not. And yeah, it's this episode I found to be amazing. And Michael McKean especially was particularly amazing. And like I said, still stands out to me as my favorite episode of the show. Uh, But I mean, that's not to say the rest of Better Call Saul coming up isn't great, but this really stands out to me. Like, I think with with time and and just new information coming in, memory fades about shows. But this one was I, I could almost recite it back to you scene by scene what goes on in here. And wow, it was just as good as I remembered it. And yeah, it's pretty awesome. So Jimmy's remorse that he shows at the end of the courtroom, it's a bit of a distant memory during his and Kim's celebration back at their headquarters. Uh, as Jimmy's sentence ended up only just being a one-year disbarment with community service. And Rebecca shows up at the offices pleading for Jimmy to help with Chuck, who's not answering the front door. And Jimmy tells her that it's not his problem and even disowns Chuck as his brother. 
And this sours Rebecca on Jimmy right away, realizing Jimmy brought her to New Mexico under false pretenses. And even watches from afar, it doesn't necessarily sit well with Kim. And you actually see this sink in further later. Uh, she's with Paige from Mesa Verde, who's literally laughing at Chuck's behavior during the proceedings. And Kim gets pithy with her during a meeting. And Kim ends up apologizing, but ultimately she says she's upset because they feel like they exploited a mentally ill person and ruined their professional reputation. And I got to say, like, this is not something that kind of carries itself out through the rest of the season. And even as I'm, I'm reading it, I'm like, I kind of feel like they don't further expand upon that. For the rest of the season, it kind of shifts Kim into another different direction. It doesn't really seem like it has that much of an effect on her and Jimmy's relationship. Am I wrong? I think that one of the issues is that they are going in so many directions in the second half. And it feels like so many things are happening that they don't necessarily have a lot of time uh, to dwell on Kim as a character. And I think it's really unfortunate because I think there is always this thing that is hanging over the Kim and Jimmy relationship because we ultimately know that Kim is not on Breaking Bad. So we're always, it's always in the back of our mind, like what happened. So it's, it's always a curiosity whenever something like this happens because it's very clear that Kim has a conscience, but it's also very clear that she has a lot of love for Jimmy for whatever reason. And I think part of that love is in relationship to what Jimmy does. And I think part of Kim enjoys participating in some of these shenanigans and even though she does feel a sense of remorse about what happened to chuck she still ultimately participated in this action whether it was good bad or somewhere in between she is still she was still an active participant and still had no problem dating jimmy so that is a it's a fascinating aspect of her character the fact that she is willing to go through these things but then feels a ton of guilt i feel like there are a lot of criminals out there who might be the same way where they do these things and they do these things but they feel a sense of remorse and they question their own character but again that doesn't that doesn't excuse the behavior no it doesn't but jimmy has to do a lot of work for this 12 months about he doesn't just get to go off without wrapping up loose ends and part of this is having to personally call every client to let him know that hey i'm not going to be your attorney for a little bit but he, he can't do this all himself and he and kim have hired a personal assistant that being francesca who i have to say jerome here versus breaking bad she seems like a much happier bubblier person and she was working at the new mexico equivalent of the dmv so how bad has jimmy slash saul treated her to where she's bitter more bitter now <laughs> by the time Breaking Bad starts than working for the New Mexico equivalent of the DMV. Yeah, it's I think it's the MVD, and this is something that came up on the podcast because I think – so they had the scene there where um, Jimmy is asking her about it. Like why do they call it the MVD here versus the DMV? And there's like a, a legitimate explanation, and Jimmy's like, well, whatever. It will be the DMV for me. And I think they threw in that line because I think Saul calls it the DMV in Breaking Bad. And so I think they wanted to retcon. This is how careful they had her attention. They wanted to put in this line just to retcon why Saul gets it wrong. So it looks like it's a purposeful mistake rather than just a flat out mistake where they didn't realize that in New Mexico, it's the MVD versus the DMV. So little attention to detail there is, is pretty fun. That is a very good catch by the writers, by the way, to notice that. I mean, is there somebody specifically in charge of making sure the continuity works? I don't know that there's a specific just like one person where that's their whole job, which I think they had someone like that on Lost. 
but you just have so many writers and editors and things of this nature who just someone's going to remember this, right? Like, cause it's their day to day job. They, they spend so much time with these scripts, these actors reading feedback online that they, it's probably just something they have so far back in their brain, uh, that it's, it's still relatively fresh then that even little things like that, they can remember. Well, it's funny you mentioned this institutional memory that exists because the person who wrote episode five, which you love and I love, and it's probably the best episode of the series is was not even there's not a writing credit was not given to either Peter Gould or Vince Gillian, who are the creators. It was actually a producer, Gordon Smith. And if you look at who Gordon Smith is, he's basically held every job that you can hold as a writer between Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. I mean, he basically started as a production assistant and then he kind of went through the ringer as a writer through story editor and things like that. So, I mean, that just shows you somebody who has literally gone from the bottom to the top to where he is one of the main producers by the third season and is writing one of the most important episodes of the season. You don't get that privilege unless you have shown an ability to write well and, in this case, have a lot of continuity. Absolutely. I mean, even looking at the the finales written by Jennifer Hutchinson, it's directed by Peter Gould, but it wasn't – They, it, you know, Vince Gilligan would write – the premieres and the finales of every season of Breaking Bad. And here they just have, I don't know if it's a timing thing or just the confidence in the writing, uh, but it, man, it shows, it pays off that they have these institutionalized writers who have held so many jobs up and down uh, and know this show inside and out and pay so much attention to the character work that it comes through in the writings and it doesn't have to be Peter or Vince writing the shows for them to be this excellent. So that's a very good thing to point out there. I say all this about Francesca and the calls because something she catches is the television studio where his commercial has been airing and he can't have these commercials air because that's going to be an infraction against his sabbatical, but he's already paid for all this commercial airtime and he can no longer use it and he can't sell that airtime to someone else. But what he can do is sell the services in making an editing commercial to local businesses who may be interested in taking those extra spots to kind of make up the difference in the cash that he's already spent. So he decides to make his own commercial to sell this service, a commercial about making commercials, if you will, but decides he needs to use a disguise and a pseudonym. And uh, what name does Jimmy McGill choose for this commercial, Jerome? Saul Goodman. That's exactly right. And I, what I think I, I like is this is how the episode ends is with Kim and Jimmy watching this commercial. And Kim makes a comment about, man, this Saul, he seems like he has a lot of energy. And Jimmy's like, eh, it's just a name. Gotta love little scenes like that. So Saul Goodman is obviously kind of a goofy name anyway, and that's inherent in the name. There have been, in some in some prequels, there have been some infamously awful scenes with names and whatnot. I always think back to Solo, a Star Wars story. It's It's got one of the worst scenes ever where they give Han Solo his name. And I don't know if this was better, but at least it made more sense within the continuity and... Just because Saul Goodman is kind of a punny name anyway, I think it works out so much better. But yes, this is our introduction to Saul Goodman. And so this commercial business starts off well enough, but ultimately ends up leaving Jimmy cash-strapped. We'll, we will get into the, the, the music store in a second, because I know you want to talk about the actors there. But one of the ways that Jimmy tries to get some money back is to try to get a refund on his malpractice insurance, and he can't use it for a year. But he can't get it just in case he's accused of past malpractice while his license is suspended. And seemingly shaken up by this, Jimmy begins to cry, discussing his brother's breakdown and alleged mental illness during the court case. 
to which uh, the insurance agent takes notes and Jimmy leaves with a pretty satisfied smile. So him messing with Chuck is not over just yet. No, and you're continuing to see the deterioration, and this is what happened. This is what happens when you don't extricate yourself from a situation that this relationship is so toxic. We talk about kind of the idea of mutually assured destruction, and that is exactly what is happening. Mutually assured destruction for both of these people. Darn right. And speaking of Chuck, now that it's been revealed to him in a very embarrassing fashion that this is a mental illness – To his credit, he's dealing with it head on. Uh, He actually walks a few blocks into a very well-lit place at night to make a phone call to Dr. Cruz. This is the same doctor from the hospital who's suggested even since season one, this is a mental illness that Chuck needs to take care of. They begin to have weekly meetings. Chuck is uh, seemingly doing much better, almost totally back to normal, it seems. Uh, You know, he has his little mental games to keep calm when things seem to overwhelm him. Uh, But he goes to the grocery store by himself, walks home. And this is where he's met by Howard to inform him of his malpractice insurance. Uh, And this is when they have a meeting that the insurance company informs them that because of Chuck's condition, all of his cases going forward will need to be supervised by another attorney or they will face severe insurance increases across the board. And we'll, we'll talk about Howard and how that affects the HHM stuff here in a second. But I'm really glad that they had Dr. Cruz here to talk to Chuck. I think it makes sense for her to be the one to talk to Chuck about this. It does kind of make me wonder like exactly what her duties are as a doctor. If she's like part therapist, part, you know, practitioner in hospitals, exactly what she's doing. But I'm glad that they kept it to this character with that continuity anyways. And it was interesting to see Chuck, kind of go go head on into trying to alleviate himself of of his uh of his mental illness i mean i think this is this is another sign that i thought chuck was gonna bite it when he talks about uh going back to practicing and getting back into the courtroom because he hadn't done it in a few years that was actually another sign um and i think retirement is always a, a sign as well which we which he gets into a little bit later, uh, because whenever you have a character talking about retirement and uh, settling down, then you know that that character is probably not going to make it because that's just how TV and movies work. But I, I do love that they brought Clea Duvall back. I think she's re- she's really good in the role. It is a it's a shame that they can't have her on more, but with Chuck kind of having some limitations. As a character, it would be tough to bring her back on a consistent basis, and and I totally get that. But uh, there there are some very good scenes, and I think we get a lot more. We get even more nuance to Howard as a person because I think we've gone back and forth as to whether he's kind of a protagonist or antagonist, and I think that continues here because I think the way that he deals with Chuck ultimately is kind of the actions of somebody who has had enough and I can understand why they've had enough. Uh, but the way that he treats Kim, uh, he comes off as a bit of a misogynist. Well, let's backtrack and talk about Howard for a second because he's doing all the damage control he can for HHM. Thanks to Chuck. We, and you talk about Kim, this reaches a boiling point where there's a, there's he and Kim happen to be at the same restaurant for lunch in separate meetings. They cross paths outside. And this is really the first time you see Howard, put away the facade of professionalism and gives her a piece of what's on his mind. And he ends up doing the same to Jimmy later when he comes to the firm, hoping Howard will help convince Davis and Maine to settle up the Sandpiper crossing case. Howard gives him a piece of what's on his mind too. 
And this insurance situation becomes Howard's last straw with Chuck. And instead of agreeing with him to change insurance agents, he wants Chuck to retire since it's obvious to him his judgment can no longer be trusted. And Chuck ends up countersuing for $8 million, what he feels his share of HHM is worth. So Howard's had effing enough of everybody finally giving people, in some respects, what they deserve. I don't think Kim deserved that humiliation in front of Mesa Verde at the lunch meeting. Maybe I think Jimmy and Chuck kind of deserve what they got coming to them. But yeah, I think the, I didn't, I didn't sense misogyny. I kind of sensed it as a sense of him thinking that Kim needs to be more grateful for what HHM has done to them and feeling like she's done him dirty after they've done her so well or what he perceives to be so well. But I can see how it comes off that way. I'm also looking at it from the perspective of the entire series up until this point, not necessarily just the context of this scene. I think is is kind of what I'm focusing on, but I think that you definitely. I, I'm glad that we did get that Kim and Howard scene because I think it's it's kind of a nice payoff and kind of something that is long overdue given the way that they've interacted in the past and with just how how poorly Howard has treated her. So I think having a scene like that in this season is really important because who knows how much more of a factor Howard is going to play in the next couple of seasons, uh, given what happens. But Howard is just such a fascinating character because they've done such a such a good job of toggling back and forth of him acting one way and then you know, manipulating the audience in a good way to seeing him in one way and then seeing him in another. And it's still never feel like they're just completely changing the character, that it all feels natural and it feels like he's the same person throughout. Yes, indeed. So we can jump back to Jimmy and his cash woes. The one place that he seems to have the most success with is his music store. He makes a commercial for them for free which is not something he wants to do, but they become so reluctant and he's so desperate. He thinks if I make them a free commercial and it does well, they'll come back and they'll buy a whole package of commercials and then I can make the money back for that time. And when this, these actors appeared as the store owners for this music store, you kind of gave me a text with a little bit of confusion behind the, the choice. Uh, it's the Scalar brothers who I know them best from uh, they were the host of this ESPN classic show when ESPN classic was a thing called cheap seats. And that I think that's what they're best known for. Would you would you agree? I don't know. You're you're much more into the comedy scene than I am. But this is this is how I know them best. They definitely had like a comedy central, like half hour stand up show. Like I forget if it was premium blend or just like a general comedy show. That's where I first heard them. But I would definitely say Cheap Seats is where they're best known. I mean, they have these little bit parts in TV shows and and maybe some movies and stuff, too. But, yeah, I would say if if you're talking about them, the the first thing on their billing is going to be Cheap Seats hosts for sure, which I actually knew a little bit about because I believe they covered some uh, old AWA episodes. Yes, I do remember they did cover some pro wrestling on this. I seem to recall them doing some brackets, some bracket like things for sports center too. I know that they, they definitely have a relationship to sports, but I, I really, I like them in small doses. That's, that's how I think they're best. So keep seats. Wasn't necessarily, I was, is I, I was into, I think they really work well because they're really annoying. And I think for this role, that's what you need is somebody who's really annoying and is going to get under Jimmy's skin quickly. And they managed to do that. And what a, what a payoff, 
uh, mm-hmm. to this to these two scenes. I mean, it's just so great because you don't quite know what's happening, but once it happens, it all clicks. And what a pr- what a pratfall by Bob Odenkirk. It's what a pratfall because what happens is these store owners they're excited about the business and they're ready to sign on to all these other commercials, but then. One of them just has to put in a phone call to the station itself and realize we can just air the same commercial over and over again and pay way less money to them. And instead of having to buy a brand new commercial for each of these slots. So Jimmy realizes he is SOL. So a little bit of slipping Jimmy reemerges literally as he purposely slips on a drumstick to get the money they agreed upon. And what the, why the hell not a guitar and an amp to boot? A guitar that he's then playing later on in the episode in uh, what a fantastic touch that was to just have him dealing with back pain while playing his guitar. Yes. Uh, and I think he's attempting to play Smoke on the Water, too. The Deep Purple song him and Marco have an affinity for. So there is that. And we see Slip and Jimmy again as a, we there's a few times where we see that Jimmy's doing his community service, picking up a trash under a bypass. And uh, their supervisor is a bit of a stickler for time. You know, Jimmy's on the phone out there and he gets his time cut. And there's a part of it where there's a fellow community service patron who is trying to leave to, quote unquote, see his sick son. And the, the patron won't let him. So Jimmy pulls out his law speak, threatening a class action lawsuit if he doesn't let this patron leave. And he ends up making $700 from the patron in order to do so because the guy ultimately doesn't want to be slapped with a lawsuit. So he lets Jimmy leave and the agreed upon deal was if Jimmy can get him out, he gets 700 bucks. But we see Slip and Jimmy in these two instances, but ultimately these are really just band-aids to, because uh, he needs a real big cash flow that he may have coming in. And that is his cut of the Sandpiper Crossing case. And before we get into that, other comments you want to make about Slip and Jimmy and uh, maybe these community service scenes? Yeah, I think you see a lot of Slippin' Jimmy in the second half of the season as he gets desperate because he doesn't have a lot of cash flow. So he's got to do what he can. And just the idea of community service, the way that it is portrayed, just the most mundane, awful activity in the world. And what I find so fascinating about this idea of community service, and I don't know what it's really like, and I don't know how it is actually done, but just the idea of so you've done this crime, we're going to give you community service, but community service is cleaning off the sides of highways? Is that, how are you serving the community by doing that? I mean, you're cleaning property at that point. And I'm just so curious to know what it's really like to to have to do this because it just does not, it does, it's not community service. You are, you are cleaning the side of a highway, which look, Yes, it undoubtedly needs to be cleaned, but all you're doing is like aesthetically making property look better. You're not really helping the community. Like you're telling me that there's not other ways to do this. So that's these are the things that I was thinking about as community service was happening. And plus, the guy was just a prick and a total cop in every negative sense of the word. Mm. And he kind of got he kind of got what he deserved. And you know, I think it's one of those situations where, look, did he have a sick son? Probably not. Does it ultimately matter? No. Right. He should have just let him go and say, all right, you don't get the hours for the day. That's what I would have done. 
Um, I mean, there's arguments to be made that having the community look cleaner is better for maybe if you have travelers in and out, people considering to move there, all these other benefits to the community of having it cleaned up. But that's not what this podcast is about. But I actually did want to mention because you were talking about the Sklar brothers and apparently they they got into a lot about like how many people happen to apply for these roles. And it came up with this supervisor for the community service. They said even a bit role like this, the show had gotten to the point where they were dealing with like 1200 different applicants for this role and the manner of breaking them down. And they also saw a lot of people to be the music store owner. But for whatever reason, Peter Gould had it in his head that it would be like a duo, like the Smothers brothers running this store. And so another person on the show suggested, well, how about the Sklar brothers? And they came in and they auditioned and they got the part and the rest is history. And again, the show has a kind of a reputation for having these comedic actors in, in, uh, in roles that are either comedic or non-comedic. So, uh, there, there's the story for how they got the part here. Now, when you say actors, are we talking about like actors in Los Angeles or are we talking about in Albuquerque? I, so it, I think it depends on the part. Um, and I, I, so I don't specifically remember where the casting was for these two particular roles, but I think it takes place in both areas. It just depends on how quickly do you need somebody? Is it a speaking role versus a non-speaking role? All these different kind of different factors. Because my guess is that in the, in the before time when you could actually go to live theater, if you were to go to Albuquerque live theater, I bet half of the actors in some of these plays have been on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul at this point. Well, and keep in mind too that it, you know in 2017 when or 2016 maybe when they're casting it, auditions don't necessarily all have to be in person. You can send it an iPhone video or a bunch of other things to for a casting agent, and if they really like you, then they'll fly you down to New Mexico or whatever to do an in-person one. So they may be doing it that way as well. And Albuquerque is also not that far from Los Angeles either. Not that far, yeah. It might it might be worth your while to get a part on Better Call Saul to eat the plane ticket for the day and go down and do it. I don't know. Perhaps. Uh, but all that said, we'll, we'll get back into this class action lawsuit. Jimmy decides to go check in with Irene, who is the representative of those in the class action lawsuit against Sandpiper Crossing. And he learns here that a settlement had been offered and if accepted, will ultimately get Jimmy $1.6 million. The problem is our old pal Aaron at Davis and Maine advised Irene to hold out for a better deal. Well, Jimmy really needs this money now, and after Howard refuses to help him, he realizes that Irene is the key to convincing all the old women to settle instead. So Jimmy orchestrates this elaborate scenario where he makes Irene's friends in the lawsuit think that she's being selfish, holding out for the settlement despite it being in the better interest to her friends, which gets everybody to turn against Irene. And she's so sad, and she's ready to accept the settlement which is great for Jimmy, but he learns that despite her acceptance, her friends still don't trust her. And even though it's going to cost him the settlement money, Jimmy orchestrates a scenario with Aaron where he looks like the bad guy by admitting over a hot mic to all the bad things he's done to make sure that Irene and everyone else hears it. And Aaron ends up going along with it because it means Irene will back out of the settlement and she gets her friends back. So, yes, Jimmy is cash strapped, but when it comes to Irene in this, he's not totally heartless. And I'm glad that they that they threw this in here because I think there is some danger of people really not liking Jimmy, what he did to Chuck. And I think it goes to show that he's not all bad. Right. I mean, in this Jimmy stuff with what he does to Irene, it's pretty despicable and probably the worst thing that we've seen up until this point because he is actively hurting 
individuals and actively trying to manipulate the situation. But yeah, I mean, this was, this was pretty bad. I mean, as these, some of these scenes were happening, it was, it was, it was pretty brutal. The scene in the bingo, in the bingo hall where he's calling the, the obviously manipulated numbers. And you see Irene sadly walking up to claim her prize. I mean, it's, it's pretty brutal. And I'm glad that we get some closure with Sandpiper because it's something that, the writers had almost kind of ignored for the first half of the season. So I'm like, I'm glad they reintroduced it to pay it off because I mean, it really feels like the end of season three is the ending of a lot of things. And when we get into seasons four and five, that it's going to almost be a different show in a lot of cases. Do you know what I discovered about Aaron listening to the podcast? Oh boy. I can't wait for you to tell me. She was in an episode of Mr. Show as Bob Odenkirk's four-year-old daughter. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So they have known each other forever. And I did not realize that till listening to this and them talking about it. But, yeah, so the actress who plays Aaron Brill here and, and Bob Odenkirk, apparently, I don't want to say they've been chums or anything, but at least have been aware of each other professionally for a very long time. That is that is a very long relationship. I'm, I'm just waiting for David Cross's cameo. <laughs> one. We'll see one day. It uh, doesn't come in four or five. Spoiler alert. That's so, not, you can spoil me on that. That's not a big deal. Well, you know what I'll say about Kim Wexler, and I and I said this to you over the phone, was that it's a very good thing a candle doesn't have more than two ends, because if it did, Kim would be burning all of them. She's neck deep in work for Mesa Verde. She has to help Jimmy with his case. And Kevin, who runs Mesa Verde, has a, a friend, and he tries to bring this client to Kim to help out. And she's she ends up having to take it because she's worried that Jimmy's cash flow may cease completely. This is but this is against her better judgment. It's way too much work for her to deal with. She's overworked, not sleeping well, and it ultimately ends up with her getting in a car crash with a boulder on her way to a meeting with a new client, which is Gatwood Oil. And fortunately for her, she makes that alive with one broken arm and some scratches on her face. But this is a real wake up call for Kim, who is just. Go she like her reputation splitting with HHM, taking on Mesa Verde as a client. I think she feels like she just has so much to prove to herself that, uh, but ultimately, like this car crash is a major wake up call for her. And ultimately, I think again, it comes back to the idea of being a female attorney. I think there's always uh, a sense of trying to prove oneself. I think that's somewhat inherent in what they were trying to do as well. And yeah, I mean, I think you realize just how good Kim and, uh, of an attorney Kim is, realizing how hard she's working for her clients. And I think that it's really great that they're continuing to establish and focus her character because I get the impression that she's going to become even more of a focal point as we move along here in this series. And I think just just building her up and really building up sympathy with the audience is 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 hugely important because I think you want people to invest in in her as a character, even in some ways more than Jimmy slash Saul because we kind of don't know what's going to happen to Kim and there's a lot of intrigue I'm sure as to what is eventually going to happen. But I do want to give props to the makeup team; uh, they do a fantastic job. Uh, on Breaking Bad, they did a fantastic job when people have gotten beaten up. They did a great job with Mike in season two. And they did a very good job of kind of making Kim like bruised up, but not like like to the point where it looks like a cartoon either. So uh, great job on their part. Well, one thing I like that they do is, yes, the makeup is fantastic, but I really like when 
Kim and Jimmy are talking in their household as Jimmy's taking care of her. Her concern is I could have hurt somebody else. I love that it's not I could have died. It's her concern that I crossed over all these lanes of traffic. I'm so glad no one else is there. I could have really hurt them. That's the wake-up call she gets. And I think that's a very important distinction to make for the character of Kim Wexler. And another thing I like is that Francesca's there helping her with her scheduling, pushing back stuff and all this. And Kim's looking at this book, and I think in her mind she's thinking, if I keep doing this, I'm just going to end up dead. Or I'm I, if I, I can't keep doing the same thing I'm doing that got me into this position with a broken arm. So she gives herself a break, pushes all her meetings back indefinitely, goes to that local blockbuster video we all oh so love so much, stocks up with a bunch of DVDs and a bunch of junk food. And man, I got to tell you, Jerome, this is my idea of the kind of respite I'd want to take. Yeah, I mean – what what else what else can you say uh, before the it's it's just so funny that a show and a franchise that was basically built by Netflix features a blockbuster in it because Netflix I mean they basically killed blockbuster dead so <laughs> it is really amusing to me that that this show would would feature a blockbuster so prominently uh, it's it's a it's a thing of beauty here and they also talked about on the podcast how they had mentioned, I think, To Kill a Mockingbird, and they really wanted to have scenes of them watching To Kill a Mockingbird. But they talked about, for whatever reason, that movie and having to deal with not just the production company, but also Gregory Peck's estate was just way too much money that they would be able to spend to have To Kill a Mockingbird on the screen. Um, but that, So I thought that was kind of a fun thing. And unfortunately for Francesca, because Jimmy's not practicing law, Kim's not really mobile anymore – they decide to sell the office, take the hit on the the rental dates versus having to just pay it for a year. But they have to part ways with Francesca, sadly. Uh, I guess we know that eventually she comes back into Jimmy's life, but it was a little sad to see them have to, to say farewell to Francesca at this point. And she can go back to the DMV. Right, uh, the MVD. I'm just going to call it the DMV. Okay, okay, Saul. <laughs> So what about Chuck? Well, Chuck's compromise with HHM is to come back to work full time now that he's over his condition. Let bygones be bygones. Obviously, this is the best outcome rather than having to pay him out his settlement or his retirement, which will bankrupt the company blind. But what Chuck did not expect, that is instead of accepting his handshake offer and to let bygones be bygones, Howard would use his personal savings and loans to pay out Chuck instead. He's not going to take HHM. He's going to pay out Chuck instead and because uh, he thinks Chuck has put his personal vendetta against Jimmy ahead of the firm and can't trust him. But this doesn't stop Howard, of course, from putting on his famous public persona in front of the rest of the firm, showing appreciation for Chuck and wishing him well in his farewell. God, I did feel for Chuck in that moment. That was a uh, pretty low that had to be one of the lowest moments he felt even after the the very public instance in the courtroom that's just it's it's hard to have that one-on-one meeting then come out and have everybody in the firm to address that's tough yeah i mean it's tough but i mean this is the moment that he's earned because of the way that he has treated howard i mean he's never treated howard as an equal so howard has the opportunity to separate Chuck from the firm and he takes advantage of it. And I think it's a really great scene because you, you see the anger that is in Howard's eyes, but you also see a little bit of pain as well. And I think that it's a, it's a tremendous payoff to their relationship. And 
I kind of knew that it was going to come in this way that Howard was going to kind of push Chuck out of the firm. And I'm not quite sure if I saw it this way, but I think it really works out tremendously well. And I'm glad that, that this show, even though it's called Better Call Saul, that they've been able to build such a solid ensemble of people and that we've gotten such tremendous performances uh, from so many so many people. And obviously Michael McKeon is a huge part of that. And what happens with the Chuck character and his kind of, you know, it seems like he's going to rebound, but then it goes into, I guess, a slow descent into madness, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and that's kind of precipitated by Jimmy coming back to try to repair some of the damage he's done to Chuck. I They don't explicitly say this, but I think it's the combination of Jimmy probably hearing what happened with Chuck. And also, I think Kim's near-death experience made Jimmy realize that holding this grudge isn't worth it, and maybe it's better to repair it now before things get too ugly and it goes beyond repair. But Chuck is not interested at all, and he flat-out tells Jimmy that it's in his nature to hurt people, and that, quite frankly, to Chuck... Jimmy never meant anything to him, and that's where we leave it. And do you think Chuck was right to do this, and was this another one of your red flags of, uh uh-oh, I don't think uh, Chuck is long for this world? Yes, this was definitely – this scene, it had a very – it had a certain finality to it. The Howard scene did as well. And I was like, oh, boy, this is is not going to end well because at this point, you know, Chuck clearly is is separated from his law firm – He's separated from his brother. The show is called Better Call Saul. It's not called Better Call Chuck. (laughs) So ultimately, you cannot have this character doing his own thing. When we know we have to keep track of what Mike's doing, we're going to be keeping track of what's going on with the drug with the drug dealers. We've got Kim as a character. We've got Jimmy. And I know that Jimmy and Kim share a lot of scenes together. But it definitely was coming across like this was – this was not a situation that was going to end well. Very similar to kind of how kind of how Gus uh, bit it at the end of Breaking Bad season four. We kind of know what the main event is. We know kind of where we're heading, and Chuck really doesn't fit into that as much as Kim does. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think Chuck was right to not accept this these amends too soon? Jimmy's too cruel. What what did you make of all that? I mean, I think that their situation is so messy that I think the best thing for both of them to do in this situation would be to just separate and to accept the fact that they are not going to have a relationship. I don't necessarily know if Chuck was right or wrong, but I think it's a, it, it would be in their best interest to not associate with each other because nothing except toxicity exists between these two and i guess in a way if you agree that you're just not going to associate with each other and just kind of leave things alone i guess that in a way is making some sort of peace but i think that's the best way to handle the situation is to just say you know what you do your thing i'm gonna do my thing we're done and i think that would have been for the best but it it could have been done more cordially i think it was just so cold to tell jimmy you never meant anything to me but yeah, I mean, and that's again, that's who Chuck is. When he loses control, and when he's not in control of the situation, he lashes out and just behaves this way. And it's, it's, it's been a clear pattern of his, especially through season three. Yeah, it just, it, it just feels like it's something he said to to really hurt Jimmy, knowing how much his brother means to him. It's hard. It's really hard to watch. But you know, this has to affect Chuck too, because 
as you said, he was making progress with his electromagnetic hypersensitivity. And boy, does all of that work go out as soon as this conversation's over. It's back in full force. And he becomes obsessed with this electricity meter outside of his home, doing whatever he can to try to reduce it to nothing. Uh, he he takes out all the light bulbs. He rips wiring out of the walls. He throws all electronic devices out into his yard. Uh, it smashes the meter when it, the reading doesn't go down the way he wants to. And again, we talk about headspace of people, and you mentioned it too, but Chuck ultimately now has nothing. His wife is gone. His relationship with Jimmy is shattered. His career as a lawyer, which he worked so hard to build and ultimately was his identity, is completely over, and his seemingly repaired mental health is now at its worst. And so that, I think, makes all the sense for the zenith of this episode. It's evening in Chuck's home. He's slowly kicking a lantern off the side of a coffee table, and the last scene of the season is from the outside of his home. You see his living room becoming engulfed in flames. And that's another jaw-dropping scene, something I, I remember very well from the first go-around of Better Call Saul and just a very somber ending to Better Call Saul Season 3. I mean, it's a really dark ending, the fact that he is literally sitting in his home and he is either going to suffocate or is he, he is literally going to be burned alive. I mean, this is not this is not like a superhero or comic book show where they're going to save themselves I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure that Jimmy is is no longer going, to, or that Chuck is no longer going to be with us. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> maybe this is my dark comedic sensibilities, but how funny would it have been if Chuck sees his newspaper and there was like a headline: Apple working on a quote unquote smartphone or an iPhone or something, <laughs> and that's what sends him over the edge. <laughs> what if? Oh man! But yeah, it's like that's the moment that sends him. It's like. I don't want to live in this world anymore. And that kicks it. And then, <laughs> and well, it's also dark too. Cause this episode begins with a flashback as them as kids. And they're reading by lantern light and in, in a, in a tent outside. And you showed there was, there was at least a point in their life when they were doing okay. Uh, that kid who played Chuck was amazing. He just really had his sensibilities down, but yeah. And then just to show how far that their relationship has been damaged ultimately for Chuck to, uh, kick the lantern versus kick the butt bucket is, uh, Again, something that if, if you don't know what's coming, you may not see the signs. I mean, you're a pretty astute viewer of television, but I didn't know that I necessarily thought that this is this would end up being the demise of Chuck. But it's, it's all very fitting, and I think it built to the crescendo that it did very well. I, was, I don't know if I never necessarily saw this coming, this specific moment, or even if it was going to be necessarily this season. But it was very <laughs> obvious to me that it was going to happen at some point, and that he was either going to be committed – or that he was uh, he was going to bite it, and yeah, I I can't say it was I wasn't surprised that it happened. I think I'm more surprised by the means that it was going to happen. I guess in my mind I thought it was maybe going to be an accident, but this is very clearly pr- being purposefully done. And uh, what a dark way to end the show! And you sent me a really dark meme after I finished <laughs> this episode. What well, what was dark about it? Well, you literally said the meme. It is a picture of Michael McKeon, and he is making reference to burning meth, except the TH is silent. Yeah, I cook meth. I'm going to cook meth, but the TH is silent. Uh, I'd been holding on to that one for a few days. Once you had told me the season was over, boop, into your inbox it went. You know, I I got that impression as as you were sending it to me, but I guess that's another parallel between uh, Chuck and Walt. They both like burning things. There you go. So your overall thoughts on season three, I know you, I think you gave the other two seasons a B plus and any other wrap up thoughts you want here. 
Uh, I would give this probably an A minus. I think this was the strongest season of the show thus far. I think the drug, the drug dealer aspect of the storyline, I think worked out much better this season. And I think that's what pushes it into the A minus territory. I really like the scene. Uh, I really like so many of the scenes. I think episode five, the fact that it is the best season of the show or uh, the the fact that this has the best episode really makes a huge difference. And I very, very much appreciated the fact that they were able to get this across and to do what they did. And I feel like it's going to be a very different show in season four, probably much closer to breaking bad than previous seasons, just because I don't think we're going to have Chuck around. And I think kind of his whole wing on kind of the characters associated with Chuck are probably going to play a smaller role. Undoubtedly, we're going to get more Jimmy shenanigans as I would have to imagine that at least the first part of season four, he's still not going to have his law license because they don't. This show does, has not really done a lot of big time jumps, so I would imagine we're going to spend some time with him trying to um, get cash flow going. A lot to look forward to with Kim, but I mean, I, I really like season three. I think the biggest difference between Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is I think Better Call Saul is a much more bingeable and easier watch at times than Breaking Bad is, if, if that makes sense. Because there's, again, with Breaking Bad, there's always this existential dread because the characters are always in danger of being murdered in some horrific way. But that doesn't seem to happen as much on Better Call Saul. Yes, we got the horrific attempted suicide or possible suicide at the end of season three, but I don't think you have that as much throughout the rest of the season, this this dread of somebody dying at any given time. I definitely agree that season three is the best of the three by far. Uh, it does include my favorite episode of the show, which helps. And I think it's interesting if you look at how many characters from Breaking Bad were introduced. It, it Just by the number of them, you would say like, wow, that's a lot. That seems overwhelming. But – feels very natural in this show, especially because they're brought back with varying degrees of importance and, and whatnot. Uh, but obviously Gus adds so much to the stories of the show. And I also think it's more bingeable just because you really do have these two camps you can separate into. And yes, there's a lot of plot. Yes, there's a lot of story, but because it's really two big stories, it feels easier to follow. And I find myself, it's very hard for me to sit down and watch one episode of the show. I usually have to watch two to feel satisfied because it's just so good. It gets me so hooked in and I'm just so enjoying the stories. And it is just a little bit easier to swallow than breaking bad. I feel like it was sometimes by necessity for whenever we were recording, I'd watch two in a row, but a lot of times it'd really just be only the one and I have to go do something else or I'd have to take, go through my notes again and make sure I kind of hit everything I needed to just because it was so much stuff going on. So yeah, I agree with all of your points. Really looking forward to getting into season four next month. Uh, but before we go, I have my typical list of Breaking Bad Easter eggs, references, what have you. So are you ready, Jerome? I am always ready. Did you, did you have any yourself that you maybe found? And I'm not no, talking like I, the obvious ones like characters and, you know, Proyos Hermanos and that kind of stuff. I mean, I did point out the, the radio show that was real in New Mexico. That's really the only thing that I had. Got it. Okay, so – uh, one of Jimmy's clients in their office named Mrs. Van Camp mentions one of the flowers at her niece's confirmation was lilies of the valley. Uh, the Mesa Verde building is actually the same building where they shot the scene in Breaking Bad, one of our favorites, where Skyler has to play ditzy and scam the IRS agent. 
to uh, to save. Uh, gosh, what's his name? Ted, of course. Yes. So yes, love that scene. Love they use that same building. Kim, I we talked about earlier, tells Jimmy to give her a dollar so they can speak as attorney and client. Well, Saul does the same thing with Walt and Jesse when they kidnap him in Breaking Bad and he recognizes Walt's voice. He tells them to slip a dollar in his pocket so he can speak to them the same way. So now we know where Saul learned that little trick. And speaking of Saul, there's a octagonal desk in Kim's office behind her desk. That eventually becomes Saul's desk in his office in Breaking Bad. Uh, Don Eladio is wearing the amulet Mike ends up stealing from him after he dies. Dr. Goodman, uh, he's the doctor that Mike gets that cocaine from on behalf of Gus. We see him in Breaking Bad. He's the doctor that takes care of Gus after he purposely poisoned himself to kill Don Eladio and also treats Mike's gunshot wounds. Uh, the brand of cigarettes Jimmy is smoking is Wilmington Cigarettes. That's the same brand in Breaking Bad where the infamous Ricin cigarette is hidden. We talked about the character of Crazy 8, but one of the stores in the mall is called Crazy 8, although it's spelled correctly, unlike the Breaking Bad and Saul character. You see it when Jimmy is doing his fake morning walk in the mall to get to talk to Irene and her friends. The fire station, Gus is visiting and uh, giving chicken to the, the employees when he's called about Hector holding his restaurant hostage, is the same fire station where Walt drops off Holly in the season finale of Breaking Bad. And finally, maybe my favorite of the season is on the counter space of the upholstery shop where Hector is laying out money for Nacho's father is a red bell, the same type of bell Hector will eventually use to communicate. And that's my little Breaking Bad crossover list for this season. Just so much meticulous detail props to the writers and, and everyone involved, because I mean, this is, this has just got to be a ton of work. And they're clearly doing this on purpose. This cl- these clearly are not accidents. No, certainly not. And why wouldn't you throw in these fun little Easter eggs? I mean, they realize they have an audience who has this attention to detail. Plus, it just adds that extra like layer of – it's just like it's something a little more deep to c- further connect the two universes. It's a whole lot of fun to watch out for these things. Yeah, it's and pretty I, fantastic. And I bet there's more I missed, but that's my list. So if I missed any, let me know. I'm at KFord13 on Twitter. And if you're already on Enter the Real World, go listen to my Adventure Time podcast, which sadly is done until HBO Max puts out more episodes. But you can go listen to all the archives of that. You can also listen to the archives of mine and Jerome's Veronica Mars podcast, as well as the archive for my lost podcast from Broadcast Depth. Jerome, where can people follow you and listen to your stuff? Uh, You can go to at Jerome C1985 to follow me on the Twitter machine. You can also... Go check out Pantheon Plus, where Brian and I have been discussing a number of films. We did a summer run. Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Planet of the Apes trilogy, as well as Beverly Hills Cop. You can also listen to our Road Trip Month, where we reviewed such great movies as Tommy Boy, a goofy movie. October was uh, Post-Apocalyptic Month, where we discussed such movies as Snowpiercer, Train to Busan, and Mad Max Fury Road. Go to hell, Matt Waters. And you can also read... My 100 favorite movies of all time, that list is ongoing. Make sure to go check that out and find out what my 100 favorite movies are. TV shows are not movies, so I cannot talk about Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. But uh, uh, there, Jonathan Banks is a is a small part of at least one of the movies that is on my list, Beverly Hills Cop. That's interesting. It's been it's been too long since I've watched that movie that I would remember him being in it. But yeah, that's a that's a great that's a fine film to include in it. Although I did read your write up and there was no reference to the Clerks animated series. I mean, sorry, 
Ken yeah, Pick you should movie. be sorry. I mean, there's going to be a Kevin Smith movie that is on the li- that is on the list. So, well, we'll get to it eventually. But that's it for this month's episode of Real Bad, episode ten. We thank you all for listening to this extra long episode, and we will be back at the beginning of December to discuss season four of Better Call Saul. Well, Kevin, I can officially say it. Better Call Saul is on fire!